Ogamito. This is uh, Kurt Wimmer, the uh, direttore scrittore of the film. Equilibrium uh, white titles, black card. That's pretty much the theme of the movie. Cheapest way to go. Anything that didn't uh, directly affect the story, I just found the cheapest way and I did it. Uh, this opening montage, I thought it was necessary because the opening action scene is has a certain amount of hyperbole in it, to say the least, and I thought it was important to get the audience's you know, heads into the right uh, space. I chose to use uh, image, voiceover, and titles because I thought if I only used voiceover and image, I think that image being so primal, it tends to take over and uh, the audience would stop listening. That's the director, by the way. Uh, we ran out of money and somebody had to do it. The audience would stop listening to what the voiceover was saying and uh, strictly focus on the visuals. So that's why we did this way we did it. The true source of man's inhumanity to man. His ability. Okay, this is Dominic Purcell here of uh, TV's DOA. Uh, Aussie guy, uh, the producer and I, Lucas Foster, we really liked him. Very good-looking guy. He's got a great voice. Sounds just like Gregory Peck. I actually read him for the lead, uh, believe it or not. Uh, however, he was at the time somebody uh, who the uh, studio would, was not going to hire. I think he'd only had a small part in Mission Impossible at that time. Ironically, I think that they would hire him in a hot second now. All of this exterior stuff here, this is all shot by Harvey Harrison, uh, my uh, second unit, uh, second unit DP. As a first-time director, I was uh, unsure of how to deal with a second unit. You know, I didn't, uh, these were guys who were uh, veterans, who had been uh, on film sets for years, and I didn't want to be like a young Turk who was coming in and just sort of throwing his weight around, and I wanted to respect their artistic integrity. So at the end of the day, I just uh, stood back and let him do what he was going to do with uh, the stuff that he shot, which was that exterior stuff. Okay, here we have the, uh, the introduction of the lead character, Grammaton Cleric, John Preston. And uh, it never ceases to amaze me how a lot of directors just throw away the introduction of the lead character. I really feel that the audience needs a naked moment, unobserved, to look in the character's eyes to decide who that person is and what they think about them. And, uh, you know, to figure out whether they like them or not. Coming up here, we have uh, the scene where he bursts into the room. This was kind of an interesting, interesting problem because... I had this idea where I wanted the camera to parallel the uh, Christian slide into the room and end up in a very specific frame. Uh, you know, on a, a larger film, this probably wouldn't have been problematic. They probably would have known how to do it. But uh, there was a lot of talk back and forth of how to accomplish that. Uh, you know, the techno crane, you know, was mentioned. Uh, cable cam was mentioned. Uh, none of this was really practical for us because we really couldn't uh, afford it. Um, but uh, the grip, key grip, Dieter Bear kept saying, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, I'll take care of it on the day. And everybody was pretty skeptical, uh, you know, including me. But, um, because it's really hard to get a camera, which is very heavy, moving that fast. But what he did is he just attached a, a rope to the uh, dolly and through sheer physical force swung it and set it down, gentle as a baby, right there. Uh, Low-tech solution really worked. Audiences aren't used to black. This is, uh, and uh, I think a lot of people thought their projectors were broken. This is some of the cheapest film you'll ever see. It's just me whispering on a soundstage and some black leader. Actually, this whole scene is, uh, is very cheap. 
Uh, I needed an action scene, I knew that, but we certainly didn't have the time or the money to uh, film anything that was choreographed. So uh, I decided just to uh, shoot a scene that was lit uh, wholly by gunfire. I moved the camera in 12 positions around Christian, had him shoot, put these guys against black duvetine and uh, set up a uh, Photolux, which is a sync strobe camera, high-speed sync strobe camera, and uh, you know a mattress to the same guys with different uh, jackets on every time and uh, had them get shot. I think it actually worked out pretty well. Uh, I saw a number of people online wrote in about this gun glow here, the heat sink of his barrels as they heat up. And I was very gratified because I didn't think a lot of people would actually be able to tell, you know, what that was in the minimal lighting there, although it is an awkward cut to that shot right there. Um, I like this, uh, this scene primarily because it's lit only by flashlights, and it's nice because it really does direct your eye exactly where you want it to go. Dominic is dead here. I had originally started the film with a shot of one of the rebels putting this record on a record player. It was a, a lullaby that I really liked and him appreciating it. I ended up cutting it out and going with uh, you know a different way to get into the film. But I kept this scene because I wanted it to be uh, explicable why Christian, when he discovered the Victrola in the Beethoven room, uh, why he would have some idea of what it did. In fact, here's the Yates book, its first appearance. I think a lot of people missed that. Uh, we're coming up on the scene where uh, Christian, forgive me if I refer to Christian alternately as Christian and Preston, because Christian really is uh, Grammaton cleric John Preston for me, uh, where they burned the Mona Lisa. You know, there was some talk in the press about this uh, decision to use the Mona Lisa. And, uh, you know, as someone who comes from a, an art background, I was certainly aware of the irony of this choice. It was something I thought about a lot. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, I think the fact of the matter is, is that the Mona Lisa is possibly the only piece of art that's universally known uh, throughout the world as being great art. Uh, some kid from Bacoima, his um, artistic taste may have expanded into other areas. You know, he may not be familiar with the, the Blauwriter or Fauvism any more than the curator of the Metropolitan Museum of Art is familiar with, um, you know, the early work of KRS-One or something like that. Uh, in any case, I, ultimately, I decided that this was the only piece of art. Even Starry Night, I think, you know, is not universally recognizable the way this is. And, uh, you know, if I'd used a bourgeois or something, you know, some people might have actually cheered. So um, at the end of the day, I felt like this was the, the safest choice to get the point across. And uh, I think, it, you know, it does get the point across. Our uh, camera battery failed twice while we were shooting the burning of this painting, and I only had two doubles. Didn't have a very big budget on this movie at all. And so I didn't really get any footage of it burning, which was disastrous. And the, the, the camera failing, the battery failing twice in this circumstance is basically the cinematic equivalent of the uh, hangman's, the rope breaking twice in a row. You know, there's a number of films, um, Fahrenheit 451, Logan's Run, Gattaca, uh, Brave New World, 1984, THX 1138, The Matrix, Alpha Oil, Clockwork Orange, Handmaiden's Tale, Judge Dredd, even Triumph of the Will. Uh, these were All of these were films that I was accused of um, unapologetically ripping off to make this film. And, you know, uh, it's true. 
I, I like all of these stories, and I actually like some of those films. And uh, certainly I did draw inspiration uh, from them for making my own dystopic universe, um, although I was, certainly wasn't trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. Because at the end of the day, I believe that this film is actually about something different than those films were about. Um, you know, I always thought that 1984 was about socialism and Fahrenheit 451 was about McCarthyism, while for me, uh, this particular film was uh, about numbness. It's about numbness, I think, um, uh, as brought on by uh, oversaturation, potentially, from the media. It's about uh, numbness that is brought on by self-medication, whether it be over-the-counter or under-the-counter. Uh, oh, by the way, this flag here, I'll talk about that a little later. Actually, I didn't actually intend for it to be look like a swastika the way it does. Oversaturation by the media, um, uh, oversatura uh, numbness via self-medication. And, um, you know, any of the ways that we've made ourselves insensible to the environment around us. Uh, and also, not only that, but a sort of uh, sister theme of a sort of dangerous, or what I think to be a dangerous idea that's growing. I see growing daily around me that some people's feelings are dangerous and need to be censored. And uh, so these are the things that uh, sort of thematically drove me. I have to say, when I see these crowd scenes, I kind of cringe uh, because, you know, I didn't have much um, uh, time or resources to, to execute them. And uh, I think that I approached them wrong. And I think even if I did have the time or resources, they still might not have worked out quite right. So, uh, by the way, this is uh, the gun kata right here. They're doing a sort of soft Chinese open style. Later in the film, you'll see them doing more of a uh, Japanese hard style. Um, he mentions EC-10 here. That's uh, clearly a reference to NC-17, NPAA, uh, the burning of film. You know, I was talking about uh, the sort of ideas that certain people's feelings are, are dangerous. Uh, I find it disturbing on a certain level that there are people out there who have set themselves up to decide, you know, what we should and should not be able to feel uh, what we can take. And it's certainly not just the MPAA either. I mean, it's happening, you know, all the time on Capitol Hill or Mayor Giuliani, um, you know, seeking to uh, censor the Brooklyn Museum of Art, etc., etc. Anyway, back to that flag. I, I didn't want it to be a... Uh, a swastika. In fact, you know, the symbol of the Tetragrammaton, which is the four T's, it looked right, right, right there on that, uh, that injector. You see it there, it's simply geometric. And that was the way it was throughout the vast majority of the film. And it wasn't towards the end of the film that I had that flag was made, and I only really saw it on the day. And I saw it, and I said, oh, Christ, it looks like a swastika. Uh, but, you know, I was stuck with it, and I had to go with it. And uh, so that's how it ended up looking uh, like that. It wasn't intentional. I wasn't trying to uh, make this seem like Nazi Germany, even though I shot a lot of the locations on Nazi Germany. These are all airport trucks, by the way, you see passing in the foreground and background. Um, you'd never know it. They look great. They're fire trucks, and but they look just like military vehicles, and they added a lot of production value to the movie, I think. And um, here we are on the exterior of uh, Hitler's Olympic Stadium, the uh, Reichsportfeld. And it takes us into the interior of DuPont's office, 
which I think is the reason why my very talented production designer, Wolf Kroger, got involved with this project. It's uh, almost identical to the way I wrote it, this minimalist, huge minimalist office with this gigantic glassless tea window in the background. I think that captured his imagination for some reason and, uh, and made him want to do the film. I have a good record, sir. Why do you imagine that is, Clark? I'm not sure, Vice Counsel. Somehow... Uh, I have to say, I think Wolf is a genius. For instance, there's these, these steps in this office here. Maybe we'll see them in, in just a moment when we make the cut. If you had ceased your interval, if you were a sense offender... Yeah, I think they're coming up right here. See these steps behind him. You're a family man. So I could only look out that T window a certain number of times because it was a green screen shot. Every time I looked out that window, uh, it, I, it would cost me, uh, it would be a relatively expensive 2D or 3D shot for me. So, you know, I told the producers, listen, I'll be responsible, director, and I won't see out that uh, shot in this window. And you'll see that the top of the frame cuts off right at the bottom of the window. Anyway, had there been less steps on that, in those steps as Wolf wanted, then I would have had to crane the camera up to a really sort of ungracious angle on Angus McFadden, which I really didn't want to do. Um, and so I said, well, it's going to have to be more steps, Wolf. And this is the kind of thing that drives a perfectionist like Wolf Kroger absolutely nuts because, you know, he had figured out with mathematical certainty how many steps, you know, would go into uh, the proportions of this office. And I totally actually respect that ethic and that way of working. However, I was, you know, dealing in a much more practical universe. And so, you know, at the end of the day, fortunately, I had final say. And we ended up with more steps rather than less. And... Uh, but uh, I don't think anybody actually notices at the end of the day. Yes, sir. Every time we come from the nethers to the city, reminds me why we do what we do. It does. You know, when I cast Christian, I cast him based on uh, his performance in American Psycho, where he did some really pretty awful things, but I found him to be eminently likable throughout the entire film, and I thought that was a character, a quality characteristic that this character would need to get through the first act and have the audience, you know, stay with him. But I never could have imagined uh, how perfect he would be for this role. This scene was shot in a garage. This is a, a great example of, um, you know, when you're on Tech Scouts, everybody's always talking about, well, we'll just let the uh, backgrounds fade to black. And there's always a really nervous look on their face when they say it like everybody standing around knows it's bullshit, but we don't have the money to fix it, so let's just pretend like we don't have to. Um, but this is a great uh, example of Dion creating a set out of nothing but light. He simply painted this space with light and created a set. There's nothing. And, um, hey, what do you know? The, um, the backgrounds do go to black, and it can be done, and it does work. This is the exterior of Tempelhof here, uh, which was uh, purportedly Hitler's airport, although it really wasn't his airport because it didn't get finished until the, um, the unexpected end to his little foray mid-century there. Um, this is a digital shot. This is a church I was lucky enough to find, a uh, sort of uh, crumbling, abandoned uh, church in the middle of Berlin. That's Dubatim behind Christian there because there's like a big busy street and a falafel stand uh, behind him. This is Sean Bean, obviously, uh, the great Sean Bean, who you may recognize as Boromir from um, Lord of the Rings. What can I say about Sean? I have to give Lucas Foster, the producer of this film, credit for bringing Sean onto this film. Um, I must have read 200 people for this part. And I thought it was a short, relatively obvious part, but out of those 200 people, I'd have to say that only about two got it. 
And unfortunately, those two were two that the studio was not prepared to hire. So we were at an impasse all throughout pre-production and into shooting. Uh, and uh, and we came down to the last minute. Lucas prevailed upon us all to hire uh, Sean here. I only knew Sean as basically 006. And uh, I didn't realize that he had the incredible gravity uh, that he has in this scene, and he would be able to bring this nobility to the Grammaton cleric that he did. It really is a, a, a wonderful thing for the film because it imbues something. It, it, it rubs off on Christian, I think, in terms of who he is and creates this sort of uh, chivalry of this knight class. Um, also, I have to say that Sean is the most complete actor I've ever worked with. And uh, this is to take nothing away from all the other fine and very complete actors that I worked with, only to pay an incredibly high compliment to this uh, consummate professional. He was able to make adjustments in his performance. I really micromanaged him, I have to say, you know, uh, because it is a genre piece, and, and I was sort of very specific about what I wanted. But, you know, in terms of when he looks down, when he looks up, on what lines, etc., and uh, he would get it instantly, you know, and he would instantly incorporate the direction and instantly make the change without marginalizing his performance at all. I was so impressed. Uh, I was uh, standing at the monitor with my jaw basically ha hanging on the floor. These guns, by the way, are uh, modified Berettas. We put clotting on them. I chose a Beretta because it was the only gun that could be modified to have top ejection, um, or it could be easily modified to have top ejection. Most guns have uh, right port ejection. And uh, I very much wanted a, a gun that would eject straight out the top. And uh, the reason for that was coming up here momentarily. So when he fires the gun, this top shot, you see the shell going through the right-handed part of the frame there? Well, I thought <laughs> in my fantasy world I could reliably get that shell to come up and hit the camera. Well, on the time frame that I was dealing with, that wasn't ever going to happen. And I realize now if you're going to do that, you've just got to do it digitally, and it'll probably work a lot better anyway. But that was the idea. It pays off a little bit later at the end of the movie in the scene in the uh, hall when he's going down the hallway because he has the guns turned sideways, and you see the shells crossing out of the tops of the guns, creating an X. So it pays off a little bit there, but ultimately it was uh, you know a fair amount of work. And and expense that didn't pay off in any sense. This is obviously the introduction of Tay. Um, I was uh, very lucky to get Tay. He was the first person I wanted for the movie, the first person I cast. I heard some people object to the fact that he smiles in this movie. I would have to take the fall for that because uh, I hired him for his smile. I thought that anybody who had a smile that perfect had to be lying about something. Um, I found his smile as dynamited as it is to be insincere, and to me, uh, a smile that is passionless, that has nothing behind it, is even more empty than nothing. And so that's, you know, clearly when he smiles it's, in this movie, it's not out of friendship or anything that resembles anything we might associate with, you know, uh, emotionally with smiling. So for me, that uh, smiling was not at all uh, hypocritical in this movie. The later 20th century saw the fortuitous and simultaneous rise of two synergistic political and psychological sciences. The first, the revolutionary precept of the hate crime. Okay, he mentions hate crime there. You know, I'm a, I'm a pretty fanatical liberal defender of the, uh, the First Amendment, and uh, which puts me in a kind of a strange quandary with the also liberal concept of the, the hate crime. 
Um, you know, I'm one of those guys that gets kind of misty-eyed at the whole idea of, uh, I don't agree with what you say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. Um, you know, freedom of speech is our most basic and most important right in my mind, and that extends, of course, obviously, to freedom of thought and to freedom of feeling. So I find it the uh, concept that one person or 12 people after the fact will, you know, uh, read the minds of a person who committed a crime, uh, regardless of the fact that the material facts of the crime remain the same, and make a determination of what that person was feeling at the time he was uh, committing the crime, and based on what they think he's feeling, uh, possibly give him a, a harsher sense. I find this troubling because um, it seems to me to start uh, the idea that feelings are dangerous. And um, not only that, but it seems to me that when you start telling people, when a government body starts telling people who they can hate, it is the same thing, or it is at least the beginning of, and, and I may just have a sort of simplistic understanding of it, um, or, but it's the beginning of telling them who that they can love. And I have a certain amount of trouble with that. This uh, is the lovely Maria Pia Calzone. She is not, you may notice, the exact same woman who is Preston's wife, Viviana, when she's being taken away to be incinerated later in the film. Uh, that woman's name was Alexis Summer. And uh, she was a very drop-dead beautiful uh, model. Uh, and we filmed that incineration scene first. And when it came time to film this scene, she was nowhere to be found. We couldn't locate her. And so we had to scramble and find a lookalike. And I was very fortunate to get uh, Maria. And not a single person, I should say, has ever noticed. That was the director uh, speaking there. He's gray, she's colorful. They both become colorful. She's color. He's gray. Okay, we're leading here into this scene where he drops his... Uh, Bioloprosium was originally called Librium uh, until I found out there was actually a real drug that did something very similar. So I changed the name. You know, I never think I got the delivery vehicle for the prosium quite correct. Uh, it was all centered around, uh, it sort of reverse engineered from the idea that I wanted it to be a glass ampule that, uh, and we could have this definitive moment where it shattered, a kind of point of no return, so that the audience could make the judgment as to whether, in fact, it was accidental or subconscious. So anyway, uh, centered around that, I had to sort of re reverse engineer the delivery vehicle, and I, never, I, I don't think I ever quite got it right. It's sort of a, a wonky little device, but that's how that happened. Matthew Harbour. Uh, this is the one actor that the audience, the studio insisted that I hire. I had another uh, young man who I wanted to hire who I thought I liked more. I also liked Matthew. He was my second choice. But for some reason, the studio put their foot down and insisted that I hire him. At the end of the day now, I'm very glad that they did. Um, because he proved to be uh, prepared, uh, intelligent, talented, calm, which is very unusual for a young actor. And more importantly than that, he had an essential character that the audience was able to connect with, such that 
as cold as he is through most of the movie, they were rooting for him when he turned at the end. And in fact, the scene where he reveals himself to uh, be off the prosium was uh, repeatedly cited as the audience's favorite scene in the film. And uh, that's something you can never predict. That was the right thing to do. Stop that. Here are your Osment. Watch out. This is a uh, digital enhancement of a building that is attached to uh, Hitler's Olympic Stadium called the Glockenturm. Due to terrorist activity, this site Due is temporarily closed. This site is temporary. See, here's another one of these uh, fire trucks. Wolf had actually wanted to build a shell over this truck and use the truck simply for its engine, but uh, I said, hey, I think the truck's great. Let's leave it as it is. Tay had just learned to drive, <laughs> and because uh, he, he lived, grew up and lived in New York, I guess, and he actually almost ran over a few people there. Exterior of Tempelhof. Maybe I'll drop by later, get my interval adjusted. Did you hear that? He just said, maybe I'll drop by later, get my interval adjusted. This implies that uh, Tay's character is either under or over medicated. I suggest, humbly suggest that it's the latter, which would also go some distance to explaining why he uh, expresses emotion occasionally. And here, of course, we have the incredibly talented and very lovely Emily Watson. I allowed her to select this dress out of four or five or six dresses. And I noticed, uh, perhaps it was my imagination, but I thought that there was a very distinct qualitative difference to her performance based on how secure she felt in what she was wearing. Uh, later, she wears something that's very vulnerable and was designed to be very vulnerable. And uh, I thought, interestingly enough, it also made her performance somewhat vulnerable. Uli Nefser handled special effects and, uh, for this movie, and he was uh, top-notch. The effects were always ready on time and uh, met or exceeded uh, requirements and expectations. And he also built this wall here. And, uh, you know, uh, being instructed to build a wall, like any good German, he set off to build a wall. And the idea was that these two guys were supposed to be able to go through this wall in about 3.8 seconds. Well, we get there, and they put their crowbars into this wall, and it turned out, you know, 10 minutes later in two mags of film, uh, they were still going at it. And these poor guys under 50 pounds of equipment, uh, they were just dying. Uh, we had one of the rare moments of levity laughing at that on set. You know, when you, uh, you're like me, if you're like me in, in any case, and uh, you're going to get to make a film, one of the things that actually excites you the most about making the film is your chance to do cool shots like Brian De Palma does, you know, in his films. And uh, that is using, for instance, a um, split diopter, like right here. And having done it, it gets, I got to tell you, it gets kind of old pretty quick. It's kind of like zooming into the old eyeball and coming out of something clever. At the end of the day, um, you know, it's time consuming and it's just uh, because you have to hide the focus point. And uh, it's just a showy thing that takes you out of the story. I'm actually a big believer in uh, focus as a storytelling tool. I actually had a really cool shot to end this uh, scene that would have tied this uh, together, but I never, or what I thought was cool, but I never got to shoot it. And, uh, but it would have given this action beat, you know, the snap that I think that it, that it needed, but it doesn't have. 
you know, I had a couple wide shots of this room that they're in here. This was a, a big concrete room that was part of a underground, incomplete underground subway station in Berlin that I used. And I regret not having putting. I don't know why I didn't ultimately put the wide shot in because it's a very nice set. Um, but it was a nightmare for sound, I have to say, because you could hear trucks going all, all day. We shot here one day. Um, and uh, we essentially had to post-sync the whole scene, which isn't, wasn't the worst thing in the world because I may have had to post-sync it anyway. Because I have to say, uh, I think I have about two scenes like this in the movie of people sitting across the desk talking to each other. And I don't think they work very well. I, 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 um, you know, I've struggled with it. How could I have made these scenes play better? And... Uh, by the way, we just crossed the line there. Who says you can't cross the line? Technically, it went neutral on Emily first, which allows you to cross the line. But uh, I meant to get neutral on Christian, too, which would have solidified the line cross, but I didn't have time to do it. Uh, in any case, you know, I've struggled with this. And uh, ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, there's only so many different ways you can shoot this kind of scene. I think it's, you know, in the writing and the fact that this is the scene where it's two people who are sitting across the table discussing philosophy. And not only that, but it's a fictional philosophy for a fictional world, so it doesn't have any real resonance with the audience. I mean, I think the scene is, is okay, but um, it could have been so much better. And knowing what I know now, I actually would have written it a bit differently. To serve Libya. It's circular. You exist to continue your existence. What's the point? What's the point of your existence? To feel. Because you've never done it, you can never know it. But it's as vital as breath. And without it, without love, without anger, without sorrow, breath is just a cloud. You know, you really have to be careful about keeping highlights off of actors' faces, especially, especially women. Choice but to remand you to the Palace of Justice for processing. Processing? You mean execution, don't you? Processing. The gun kata. Okay, so I invented the gun kata in my yard basically, after I would make sure that my family was out of the house and the neighbors weren't looking over the uh, fence, I would uh, develop it in the grass and behind my house. And, um, you know, I remember thinking, wow, you know, am I crazy? Do I, do I actually have the balls to uh, hang a movie on this concept, which may not work at all, which may fail completely, and if it fails, the movie itself will fail. Um, the reason I did it, it, I think it grew out of a certain frustration and love of simultaneously of gunfights on film. You know, about 10 years ago or more, actually, um, you know, Hong Kong invented the great idea of having two guns in your hands when you shoot. And Hollywood quickly caught on, and soon everybody was holding two guns and blasting away. And then uh, Hollywood came up with their own sort of uh, urban variation on that, which was to turn the gun sideways when you're shooting, and then Hong Kong reabsorbed that. But uh, that was simply seemed to be the end of gunfighting for several years. And uh, it was frankly getting pretty damn boring. And I asked myself, you know, in a thousand years, is this really the gun, what we're going to be looking at in terms of gunfights? And, uh, you know, I just wanted to see something new. And so uh, I invented the gun cut. I remember when I first showed it to, uh, to my stunt coordinator, Jim Vickers, in a hallway in Germany, and I was going down the hall doing this. He was the first person to ever see it. And uh, 
<laughs> how silly I felt, actually. And I don't know what he actually thought when he was watching it. He never actually said it. But to his credit, he just embraced it, and uh, he flew with it. And I think, you know, together, together giving our limited resources, uh, we actually did a pretty decent job of conveying this uh, cinematic fiction. And it is obviously a cinematic fiction. I tend to think that the thing most suited for film is dance. And I would actually love to do a musical one day. Um, but, um, you know, this is sort of my version of combining the two and, and uh, translating them to film. Originally, this scene was supposed to take place on his roof. He was supposed to wake up and be so overcome with uh, emotion that he runs upstairs, bursts out onto his roof and sees the sunrise. But uh, as usual, and I'll be flogging this all throughout this commentary, budget, budget, budget. As usual, we didn't have time or the money for a separate location or a move. So uh, interestingly enough, uh, I then reasoned, okay, well, they wouldn't have the re uh, need for clear windows in Libya because you wouldn't need to look out of a window. They would be simply there for transmitting light. So it led to this idea of tearing the skin off the window, uh, which I think actually sort of thematically uh, works better, you know, as a substitute for running the drama of running up the stairs. And um, we have the uh, digital cityscapes were created by a company called Digital Firepower, a guy named Charles Darby, very uh, talented painter. For the life of me, I, I don't know why I didn't have Christian run with greater urgency here. It bugs me every time I see it. So I love shots like these, but I got to tell you, for those of you who are first-time filmmakers or about to be first-time filmmakers, this is you know what they call the shoe leather, and these are the shots that are the first to go when you're trying to get your uh, your two-hour and 25-minute assembly down to a brisk 90 or 100 minutes. Um, you know, and it's interesting if you start paying attention, which you do after you have to lose a few of these scenes and it breaks your heart, to, you know, veteran directors. When they have shots like these, there's something going on in the frame that is essential to propelling the story forward that makes it so it's not shoe leather. So, um, keep that in mind. You love them, but ultimately you gotta lose them. And all that it has done to make us great. Dean and I made the decision not to gel the fluorescence in this, uh, which is the sort of decision that freaks out producers and has them on the phone to the lab, you know, trying to find out how bad the film actually looks. But, uh, you know, it turns it a little green, but I don't think it uh, hurts at all. In fact, it has the effect that we wanted, and um, I think it works quite well. Um, critics laughed at this scene, and I, for the life of me, I, I don't know why. Uh, I think it's a, a nice scene. Very difficult to light, though, because the only place you can put the lights is either behind this crowd of people or steeply up, looking down, which uh, in this case led to uh, these great shadows, these very dramatic shadows on Christian. But it was a very difficult scene to shoot because you can only do it on Steadicam and the focus is almost impossible in that kind of lighting uh, with a Steadicam moving on a set of stairs. This was the uh, platform, the main platform of that uh, subway I was talking about. Uh, you could see, if you go back, the, um, the uh, lines for the train, train tracks on either side. Uh, it's underdressed only because of budget, but um, the space itself, I think, uh, gave us a, a good amount of production value, considering our modest film.
facing it. With sameness. With unity. Allowing each man, woman, and child in this great society to lead identical lives. The concept of identical environment construction allows each of us to head confidently into each moment with a secure knowledge. I always regret not using a more strident uh, sound cue to introduce Tay there. These are the things that you tend to obsess about after the fact, these little things that drive you nuts. I had no feelings about it. I'm merely attempting to optimize. Sense offenders holed up in the nether. Coming down the stairs is Mike Smith, the assistant uh, stunt coordinator. He's also Christian's double, championship diver. Actually, Christian really didn't need to be doubled more than twice, I think, for two flips. Uh, but that was it. Uh, Mike was a great guy, a lot of fun. A very positive presence to have on set. This kind of action here, this chaotic action, um, because it is sort of secondary, it becomes hard to shoot because it becomes chaotic in and of itself. I look forward to the time when hopefully I have a bit more in the way of resources and I can actually uh, choreograph and plan this action out with the detail that uh, we plan some of the other action out. Cover me, I'm going in. This is interesting. This guy was uh, just an extra I pulled out of the crowd because I liked his face. But uh, being an extra doesn't mean that you're an actor. And uh, actor, extras generally tend to act. But eventually, uh, you know, what I did after a couple tries and not working, I told him, you know, the translator, listen, hold your breath. So he holds his breath, and after about 30 or 40 seconds of him holding his breath, I called roll film. And, you know, then we had action. And by that point, he was uh, less concerned with acting and more concerned with breathing. And I was able to get the correct, I think, relatively correct expression on his face there for, you know, what's essentially you know, a hero moment. Um, this scene here, this was actually another one of those sort of fortuitous uh, screw-ups. Originally, Christian was supposed to walk down the hall and intuitively sense a door that had been hidden in the wall. Well, the art department halfway into the day that we were to use it showed me the door, and unfortunately it wasn't hidden at all. I think an infant could have found it. So uh, that wasn't going to work, so I had Mike Lindsay, my on-set prop guy, uh, who was always reliable, go with a hammer and make what ostensibly were bullet holes in the wall, and I would have Christian walking down, feeling the bullet holes, and sense the light coming through one that had pierced the wall. Actually, I think it works a lot better than my original idea, although I should have pushed in on that shot there. Okay, this is a scene where he comes in and he listens to Beethoven uh, for the first time. Now, I saw a lot of people online write in and say that this scene um, affected them. I think, you know, uh, even mentioned it on uh, Ebert and Roper. And that surprised me, actually, because I always thought, um, and I still do, I feel that I failed to a large degree in this scene, that it doesn't have the power or resonance that it could have or it should have. And I've obviously looked at this scene a lot, and there are other scenes in the film that I feel like uh, could have been done better. 
But all of those scenes, I know how I would have shot them differently or how I would shoot them differently if I could go back. But this is the one scene where I have no idea how I could have made it better. I just know that it could have been better. I think I just sort of reached the limits of my filmmaking ability in this particular scene. I would really like to see how a, a great filmmaker like Milos Foreman or somebody like that would shoot this scene. Um, part of it does have to do with the music, however, I have to say. Um, some people, critics, uh, criticized the fact that uh, I used um, Beethoven's Ninth here, saying that it was strictly an uh, unthought-out rip-off of Clockwork Orange. That's not the case at all. The reason I used, uh, I don't think, by the way, that the first movement shows up in Clockwork Orange at all, but the reason I used it is because it's the only piece of music I know that has this kind of power that starts essentially from nothing, just from sounds like an orchestra tuning its instruments, and in 30 seconds it reaches crescendo in a convincing manner. Uh, there are very few pieces of music that can do this and do do this, and this was uh, the only one that I knew of. And obviously I couldn't spend you know, three minutes or four minutes or more on this scene having this piece of music develop. So uh, that's why I chose to use the uh, piece of music that I did. This is one of the few shots that I went back to get again. Um, I generally didn't have time, even if I wanted to. There would have been plenty more, I could promise you that. But uh, it was just one I just wasn't satisfied. It was very hard because I think it was a, a boom-up, dolly-in, zoom-in. Actually, it was a rack-focus, boom-up, dolly-in, zoom-in. Uh, and obviously there's tremendous focus issues when you're doing something like that. Now, when I first uh, started, before I, I even sold the script, I had selected this piece of music. This is, uh, uh, it was going to be uh, Carajan's uh, arrangement of the Ninth Symphony, done, I think, by the Berlin Philharmonic. And I carried it with me all through production. I even used it when shooting this scene. Uh, and it wasn't until the very end of pre-production that my post-production supervisor and associate producer in a known Tante came to me and said, you've selected the most expensive arrangement of music of this music in the world. It'll cost us $75,000 to use the 90 seconds you want to use. Well, figuring we had, you know, 65000 in the budget, I, and we might be able to stretch it. I said, how much do we have? She said 1500 Well, there was no way I was going to make that leap. So I was forced to basically scratch around in the bargain bins until I found another arrangement that sort of worked, and I had to recut the scene and uh, lay that, what I'm sorry to say is an inferior piece of music in. And... Um, the scene, uh, it never really worked quite the way I wanted, but it never worked, it works less good now. This is my favorite piece of uh, Christian's acting right there, uh, the physicality that he uses. He does so much with so little, I mean, especially in a part where he really isn't supposed to emote that much. I think he did a wonderful job. I like this speech from Tay, particularly because of the way he delivers it. It sums up his character and actually makes him slightly sympathetic. I think he does a really good job in this film. Working with dogs, getting them all to bark. Yeah. Here's a good example of why you should uh, light the guns in the foreground. And this is obviously a, a difficult scene to do, a delicate scene to do. I'm uh, quite certain there are plenty of people out there who would argue that I did it indelicately. 
But uh, the trick ultimately was to see how it was to to make it effective, to push the limits of what the audience could take in terms of the off-screen brutality of uh, these dogs, whom obviously the audience loves getting slaughtered, and yet uh, have it still retain the impact that it would need in order to make you know, this, the end of this scene and the scene later in the film where he saves the dog work. Interestingly enough, uh, my very talented uh, sound editor, Steve Flick's entire voluminous library of dog sounds uh, really just didn't contain the kind of character I needed for the dog. So what we ended up doing was hiring a woman who's, uh, whose job it is, and she's a professional, is to characterize dogs uh, for movies. And uh, we came in and I essentially directed her to be a puppy. So all these sounds you hear with puppy here are in fact uh, this woman acting like a puppy. Seems to me that at least some of these animals ought to be tested for disease. There's an epidemic in the nethers, it's best we know about it. I don't quite follow your logic. You know, I think a lot of people who watch this film assume that uh, this father figure, and the, the fact that he's named Father, was uh, simply a transliteration yes. of uh, Big Brother 1984. In fact, that actually never really entered my mind. That wasn't the idea at all. Uh, it, it, in fact, it was a resonance of these um, religious themes. You see the cross, the thinly described cross behind him, and, and Christian in what is essentially a 19th century deacon's frock there. Um, it was uh, simply a resonance of the theological themes uh, that um, hopefully the logic of process, uh, themselves resonate throughout this film. What we have worked so hard to eradicate? You must understand, Preston, that while you and even I may not always agree with it, it is not the message that is important. It is our obedience to it. Father's will. Call it faith. You have it, I assume. Maybe that's too heavy-handed. Yes. I have it. Good. I was greatly concerned that the audience, you know, which I anticipated to be male, and I have to say the studio was also greatly concerned, uh, that the audience would be able to sit through scenes like that small one that just uh, occurred and the one that's about to occur, uh, that they would give us the pass. Uh, by the way, that shot right there, that's a reverse shot. It was actually supposed to go at the end. That's him closing the box as opposed to opening, but uh, I needed a different way to get in the scene, so I reversed it. Uh, I did that a lot during the film. works pretty well. Uh, but that they would uh, give us a pass and sit through this to get to the, the action. Well, what happened was that, uh, for the most part, they uh, not only accepted it, but they completely embraced it. Another interesting thing is that um, women actually attested as uh, liking the film fractionally better than men, which is unheard of, if not unique, uh, for a science fiction action adventure. I've often wondered why. Sometimes I think it's because... Uh, First of all, there are many uh, women out there who would like their boyfriends to look like Christian Bale. But more importantly, I think there are many women out there who would like their boyfriends who should look like Christian Bale to go 
through this journey. This was an essentially an emotional journey of getting in touch with his feelings. And uh, when he starts, you know, kicking ass at the end of the movie, he's doing it in the name of emotion, which is something that women can get behind, you know, which as opposed to the reasons that uh, men usually kick ass in movies. Was it manipulative of me to use the puppy? Well, at the end of the day, I, I think that uh, any time that every decision that a filmmaker makes is ultimately manipulative because he's trying to get the audience to feel something. Otherwise, what's the point? Or he doesn't have a, any sort of sense of what he's about. So if you end up feeling as designed what he intends for you to feel, then I suppose you've been manipulated. But in truth, uh, when I set out to write this film, I wasn't trying to be calculating it at all. I needed to show that he was beginning to feel. And I didn't want him to go from zero to infinity in certain, and in one instant and suddenly embrace his family. So, you know, really, in honesty, what better creature to use than a puppy? I could have used a parakeet, it's true, but uh, I think that would have been silly at the end of the day. Having said that, uh, the truth of the matter is, is that the puppy, as it has many times before, just works. Let's watch. sleeper here is a fellow named Dan Clark, whom you may recognize as Nitro from American Gladiators. Identification. Clark. Um, he was uh, very nice, nice enough to come over to Germany and help us out on this. He's a, uh, a talented actor and a screenwriter as well. Very nice guy. Don't have it. Unidentified individuals are subject to summary destruction. You're making a very big mistake. I'm a Grammaton cleric, first class. Research your vehicle. No, you're not. There's nothing in it. Search it! Clear, sir. Keys to the trunk. I'm trying to tell you. I have a pre-dawn combustion witness. I'm not... Captain, this is... Amazing. That guy was wearing a mask in the middle of the night that has black glass on it, thick leather gloves, and he was able to catch those keys with one hand every time. I was, it was amazing. I don't, I don't think that... Uh, any professional baseball player could do that. you one last time. Don't do this. Down on your knees! 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 Down on
So this gunfight coming up is uh, worth commenting on in that uh, I actually had an idea that uh, actually worked for once, and that was that we would put uh, strobes into into the ends of Christian's guns and attach them by our wires to all of the uh, squibs in the um, in these uh, costumes of the sweepers. Uh, in th that way, every time he pointed the gun and fired at one of these sweepers, they would be illuminated by the light, and the strobes would go off in perfect concert with his movements. And ended up getting giving a uh, tremendously visceral nature to the um, to the the gunfight that you don't usually see, uh, because the squibs are often uh, slightly off and you sense it. And uh, I think it's actually the first time it's ever been done, and uh, it worked great. Now this, this was manipulative because I did go back and cut this back in when I'd originally not included it. So, uh, but uh, the audience always seems to enjoy it. Dailies were structured in such a way that I think we were three days behind, so it wasn't until three days into shooting that I actually got to see the first day's dailies, which these were. These were the first day's dailies here. I was watching them. I remember there were tears in my eyes because I thought they were beautiful, the balance between the black leather and the liquid mercury of the, of the mirror. I thought it was just absolutely gorgeous. And as I was sitting there watching it, it hit me for the first time. I am making a real movie at last, you know, after 15 years. Sir Sue Baden Powell did an incredible job in stretching our $20 million budget into making it look like what I think is significantly more. And, um, you know, Jan was the perfect producer. He was uh, there when I needed him, and he was a ghost when I didn't. This was a, um, a municipal building in Berlin. It was perfect for me, except for the floor. Uh, we had to cover it with black mats, which was a big deal on our budget. And even worse, these black mats, they had to... Um, Do they know? They had to be mopped. They picked up footprints, like you wouldn't believe. The same with the black floor in DuPont's office. And they had to be mopped between every setup, or every scene, and every shot, I should say. And it was an incredible time eater. So keep that in mind, first-time directors. Black floors, reflective black floors, they look great, but, man, they can kill you. Uh, 
Christian fights underhanded here. He always fights underhanded. That, of course, is the style of Satoichi. The blind swordsman. Acceleration in the crackdown on offenders. Whoever did it, all they accomplished was a quicker end to the resistance. <laughs> <laughs> Sack tap, that's always good for a laugh. I came to tell you there's a raid in the nether, Sector 7. So get ready. Um, all of this was uh, shot by my second unit, second unit DP, Harvey Harrison. pick it up although in this particular scene right here Harvey lit it and you can see the marked uh, contrast in styles lighting styles between Harvey and Dion like this guy look exactly like uh, Albert Durer's self-portrait I mean it's a spitting image the um, unfortunate about to get shot over there is the uh, is the director I don't know why it is but directors always want to get shot in movies we really enjoy it Get out of here, goddammit! If you don't, you're dead! Don't do it. He'll shoot us in the back. He's gonna shoot you. I'll shoot you in the face. Now go. Mike Smith again. Damn you. Follow me. Now! Let's go! You know, there's a... <laughs> there's a gag coming up momentarily where Christian gets into a hand-to-hand a, a -hand fight with two guys. And uh, I had an idea on the morning of, and I have to say nobody thought it was going to work, but the idea was that um, uh, the guy's going to get his arm broken. We had a prosthetic arm, and the idea was that we put a squib in there. And I don't think it's ever been done, actually. But um, you'll see it coming up right. Bang, there goes the squib. It was a blood squib. And it actually works really, really well. And uh, we only had one take, and uh, fortunately, we got it. So. Go. So this is kind of interesting. I basically ran out of time, as usual. And uh, at the end of the day, and I had to shoot this scene. This scene where he fights these guys was shot in 30 minutes. This is beyond impossible. And the only reason I was able to do it is because Christian was such a, a dead-on athlete. We were able to shoot the fight itself about five times. And that gave me the uh, footage that I needed to cut this together. It could have been a lot better had I had more time. I mean, you need a day to shoot this scene easily. Um, but we literally shot it in 30 minutes. So given that fact, I'm actually amazed that uh, it comes out, you know, as well as it does at all. Sound transition right there when he put wipes frame. That's one of the many small favors that my very talented sound editor Steve Flick uh, did for me. I didn't even notice it until after the film was done. Uh, he just tends to put those little things in there, but you know, it it smooths the visual transition over. It makes it work. 
What are you doing? Nicely done, cleric. You drive them into the trap. I close it. This set here, this room, this is a very good example of, um, you know, how I approach production design in terms of camera. Uh, you know, I went to produ production designer and I knew, I said, listen, you know, I timed it all out. This is how many steps I need from the door to where Christian stops. This is where I need the practical lights in terms of where Christian stops. This is how many steps I need between Christian and the glass wall or how many feet I need between Christian and the glass wall. This is how many steps I need, how many feet I need between Christian and the exit. And I need another identical exit on the other side so Tay can come out of it. And so as you can see, these sorts of considerations uh, tremendously dictate the way a set's going to be laid out. Uh, so, you know, if you have an auteur as a production designer, it, will, it can and will lead to problems. But the truth of the matter is, for me, the after, of course, you know, the, the narrative character of the story, which is conveyed by the actors, the camera is king. And I, t you know, w this is a, a visual medium. We're used to a visual storytelling medium, and we're using visuals to tell a story. So what the camera sees, or what I intend the camera to see, is the most important thing to me. And uh, other considerations have to fall in line behind that. Uh, I set out to make uh, a very visual film, and hopefully, on some level, I succeeded. I believe, and uh, I would actually love to test this series sometime, I believe that someone who has not seen this film before could turn the sound off and watch it without sound and have no problem following exactly what the story is about. So, as you can see, is yes, you know, a certain amount of steps to get out of the room, and it's all about the pacing of the scene. You know, if it takes him 15 seconds to get out of this room, the scene would never be able to be timed out like this. And if you're not making these decisions before you shoot, you're going to end up in trouble, I think, in the cutting room. I don't know how other directors work, but, uh, you know, you will end up stuck in some senses, in some instances, if you don't make these decisions. And... So it's all been very clearly, hopefully, thought out in advance, based on, like, for instance, that final frame there. Yes, cleric. You asked me to become father's instrument against the resistance. I had two editors on this film. Um, the first one was a very talented man named Tom uh, Rolfe, and uh, who uh, picked up the Oscar for uh, the right stuff. To locate the underground once And... Uh, after a number of months, uh, he came to me and he said, you know, all the cutting that can be done on this film has been done. And uh, he had been offered uh, an opportunity to go cut a, a film that's about five times larger, which was called Wind Talkers. And uh, he asked me if I would mind if he went and, and took this job, and I said no. And he did, and I promptly promoted his assistant, a young fellow named William Ye, who had never cut a film before. And, uh, but, uh, you know, William had the attraction of being one of the few people who was actually an advocate of this film while we were shooting and was optimistic about what this film could be. And I promoted him, and he and I proceeded to tear this film apart frame by frame. We have no frame untouched. And I have to say it was in that period of time that I really learned everything I know about the character of a film 
as is distinguished by the exterior appearance of a film, which I brought to the cutting room already. And it's almost like the difference between, you know, a beautiful woman, you see her and she's beautiful, but, you know, then you've got to talk to her and you've got to see what her character is. That's what I mean when I say the character of the film. I learned everything about creating the character of the film in that time uh, with William. We, um, we did everything we could to maximize every frame of this film by hook or by crook, whether it was you know, reversing footage, flipping the negative, slowing it down, speed ramping it, you name it, we did it. We were like sort of top fuel technicians you know, working on a car to get every last cubic inch of horsepower out of an already overtaxed engine. Um, I'm uh, very proud of the job that uh, William and I did here. Here's an example. That picture is an example of the creative bankruptcy at its best. I, uh, you know, they've been bugging me, Cosmo had been bug bugging me forever. You know, we need to know what uh, Partridge is going to be wearing in this picture. And I just couldn't decide what he would be wearing, you know, when he was busy um, committing his sense crimes and he wasn't in his, his uniform. So I'd put this decision off in the face of the countless other much larger ones for a long time until basically the day of. And, you know, I ended up sticking him in a plaid shirt, which looks kind of silly, I think. And that was a composited picture. But uh, anyway, you know, I now know that it doesn't matter if it's, uh, you know, a small, seemed like a small decision. You saw it, it was, you know, 15 feet tall, you know, and on a theater screen. And, uh, you know, it, it has every bit as much resonance and impact as, as uh, a close-up of our heroes. The old split diopter here. It's interesting how sterile these split diopter shots work. I really, really don't like them as much as I, I was just dying to do one of my own. I, I doubt I will ever do them again. As my hands there. Um, a lot of the hands, if not most of the hands, or maybe even all the hands in the movie are mine. I generally do the hands myself because they, I don't want to trouble the, uh, the star with, with that. But also because it's very difficult to convey direction to people about hands because hands are so incredibly subtle. You could spend all day trying to explain to somebody uh, what you want them to do with your hands. So at the end of the day, I, I just end up doing it myself and I get it the way I want it. This is Brian Connolly. He's a, uh, a very popular comedian in England. I believe that he has a talk show over there, or he did. And uh, he was uh, kind enough to come over and help us out for a day. This set is interesting, uh, an interesting example of Wolf's talent. I walked on it and was ready to walk out. It was a parking garage, an open-air parking garage. But uh, Wolf said no. And he said, you know, we just put up some flimsy walls here and there. And um, bang, you know, based on that ceiling right there, the strength of that low ceiling, he saw it as what's, you know, a pretty good set, I think. And uh, that was his true talent. He could walk into a space and see its potential like no one else. Very, very impressive. Why are you so scared of me? Now, you will tell me everything you know about Errol Partridge, or I will have a wagon come to take you to the Hall of Destruction for summary combustion. I really don't know. He'd come in here with a fella named Yerk. Why? That's all I know, I swear. Brian did a quite a good job considering he's a comedian at playing this essentially dramatic role here. 
on the back of the plywood there. I was so worried people would see that. That's how he broke through the wall. Rather interesting here. On the other end of this shot, here, essentially, there was a scene that I took out, that I excised. And I, if we ever have a special edition of the uh, DVD, I'll definitely put in. You'll notice his gun disappears here. And uh, I was able to do it because I approach, uh, uh, you know, coverage with a certain amount of formalism. There's certain... Um, thematic consistency of the way I cover similar scenes so that I was able to, um, you know, it was an added bonus that I hadn't foreseen, but I was able to cut two unrelated scenes together relatively seamlessly. This is uh, the great William Fickner. Uh, I was also incredibly fortunate to get him. Uh, William is uh, one of the few American actors I've had the privilege of working with who actually meets or exceeds, you know, the abilities of his uh, English counterparts. And uh, not only that, I have to say, but he may be the best, most spot-on post-sinker in the world. The man is a machine when it comes to re-recording. Welcome to the underground. For first-time filmmakers out there, often you will um, you will shoot a master essentially, and you'll see the master coming up in this next shot right here. That's it, or a wide shot in any case, and uh, it's framed. You know, you frame that. But generally, you're tempted to move that master during the course of the scene so that you know you have some variation, some variety. And uh, it goes someplace. But the thing that catches you out is that uh, mass, that wide shots like that are generally only good for entering or exiting a scene, though I frequently see directors who ill-advisedly uh, pop out to the wide shot in the middle of the scene and thereby dissipate any tension that they might have achieved through editing. Uh, but in any case, if you start the master and then you start, and it's perfectly framed, or what you think is perfectly framed, and then you start moving it, by the time you get to the end of the frame, the, you know, the composition has clearly fallen apart. And that's what happened to me here. Uh, that wide shot would have been most effective had it been used at the exit of the scene. However, by the time uh, that point in the scene had been reached, the composition had fallen apart, and it just wasn't a picture I liked. So I was forced to shoehorn it in at the top of the scene there. Um, I didn't actually have to use it, but I liked the shot, so I, I did shoehorn it in. Is that it has its price. Complete paradox. This is the definition of a great actor. This is someone who will take dialogue in a fictitious, fictitious world, but a fictitious philosophy, and commit to it totally. And I think if this movie works on any level, it's because all of these actors and all the technicians on the film committed to the reality of this film, which is what you had to do. Um, a couple of critics described the film as unapologetic, as though on some level you should apologize for making a certain kind of film. I think that committing is the essence to making good films, much like, you know, Spielberg committed to the concept of E.T., which is on the surface an absurd um, concept, but yet he and everybody in that film committed to it in such a way that uh, you bought into the reality. This is the um, part of the um, Reichsfeldsport 
uh, stadium, the Olympics, German Olympic Stadium. Uh, a tremendous amount of production value out of it. Look at this. Can't build that. This truck that's about to pull up is a, um, a Mancat IA-1, I think, which is a German firefighting machine, uh, originally developed for NATO, I think. This is an amazing machine. It's uh, a thousand horsepower, automatic transmission, top speed of 140 clicks, does uh, zero to 125 seconds. And that, by the way, is with 40 tons, loaded with 40 tons of water. So when they talk about German engineering, you know, they're not really kidding. There were people who were bothered, I think, by the fact that DuPont expresses uh, what can be construed as emotion in this scene, and certainly it does, and by the end we find out that he is in fact feeling, and, but I don't think that's a surprise to anybody, because it was always my approach or my assumption that uh, we as a society believe that one of the fundamental, fundamental tenets of any dictatorship is hypocrisy. I, so it shouldn't be any surprise that, you know, Stalin is not living as according to his own needs. And it also should not be a surprise, I don't think, to the audience that the people that are beneath the dictator don't, while perhaps being observant of this behavior, don't speak up about it, because that's one good way to being lined up against a wall and being shot. Now tell me, if you'll be so kind, how exactly have you been making use of your time of late? Anyway, that's why I felt uh, it was perfectly all right for him to, for DuPont to express his hypocrisy, because that's what we expect. But not only that, the irony of this movie, I think, in some way, is that the only true believer of this system is Grammaton cleric John Preston. How is it that you intend and to expose this? It is that fact that he, at the beginning of the film, truly believes in the dogma of this society that makes him noble. He is not doing what he is doing, knowing that, that, that it is fundamentally hypocritical. Absolutely. 100% right, sir. Of course I am. The cleric is the final line uh, of defense. And that's what makes him good. And it is the fact that the other people, like Tay and Angus here, are uh, perpetrating the, the uh, tenets of the society while being conscious of the fact that they're hypocritical that makes them evil. To find this traitor and bring them all to the council's fair justice. Uh, a funny thing about this uh, this particular scene, I was in one of the very limited rehearsals we had, I was actually kind of worried that Christian didn't get this character at all. And it was bolstered by the fact that Christian came to me with regard to this scene and said, you know, uh, maybe Christian is not taking, is not here to take his children's prosium away so that they can take the same journey that he is taking as you, the writers, intended. What if he's in there because he can no longer stand the rush of emotion that he's feeling and he's stealing his children's prosium so he can go back on it, uh, but he's thwarted by the awakening of his child? What are you doing? And uh, after that conversation, I went to our producer, my producer, Lucas Foster, and I said, oh, we got problems. But um, the fact of the matter is, by the end of the movie, Christian 
understood the character that I created much better than I ever could. And to this day, I am not sure whether with that conversation and a few others we had, if he was simply testing me or just fucking with me. Um, we'll never know. He has a very dark sense of humor. And at this point, in retrospect, I'd say 50-50. I don't understand. My execution set. Why are you here? Um, this was a scene that was out for a lot of uh, the cuts of my cuts of the film, and Christian argued quite strongly to have it put back in, and I'm really glad I listened to him. If you'll notice, Emily's uh, costume becomes more color-saturated throughout each scene. We actually had created different uh, costumes for her, so that the more he became aware of color, uh, the brighter she would seem. Interestingly, that was very taxing on our costume budget, what? believe it or not. As something as simple as that. What do you do? And that's the very vulnerable costume that we created for her, you know, and we're sitting on a cold German set in this incredibly vulnerable costume. And it was surrounded by technicians. Another interesting, some interesting thing to note about this film is as the relationship progresses, uh, for, uh, be it as it is in this movie, the table grows smaller. The table that they are at in the beginning of the first scene in this room, they could never have reached across and touched like this. You'll notice, as a matter of fact, when uh, she gives him the vial of prosium and grabs his arm, they have to both lean across the table to do it, whereas here they're able to easily touch their fingers. Fifty sweepers, maybe more. What about an audience? Can you somehow arrange to meet with them? Father's never given a single audience since the upheaval. The danger of assassination is too great. You trained you your whole life to fight these kind of odds, Preston. Even if I could. Even if I could make it through, what guarantee is there it would accomplish anything, that anything would be different? We have a network that's larger than you could ever imagine. Instant word comes that father is dead, that the council is leaderless. Bombs that have This is a mixture of production sound and post-sync from William Fickner here. It's amazing. You cannot tell where one begins and the other stops and the other begins. Our cause will be won by human nature itself. What about war? The everyday cruelties that are all gone now. Replaced by the Tetragrammaton. Will you do it? Look at the background on this guy. Yes. Can you? I don't know. Seeing her one last time will only make it harder to do what you have to do. This is my favorite piece of music from a very lovely score that Klaus Badelt created for me. Um, I originally had a, a very prominent composer on this film, and I was very unhappy with his work. So on the recommendation of Vicki Hyatt, one of my music editors, I hired this uh, young fellow who had never done his own film. He actually worked for An Zimmer, and that turned out to be Klaus, and Klaus and I hit it off. And uh, he went on to create what I think is a wonderful score. And all the more wonderful given our resources and given the fact that it is entirely uh, synthetic. And there are a number of people, I think, who think this score is bombastic, but I think it works very well for the film, and uh, I will remain forever his fan. 
file. That's Alexis Summer, the original uh, wife for Preston. Viviana Preston. Sentence and incineration. Auditory. Viviana Preston, for ceasing your interval, for the crime of feeling, you stand condemned to suffer annihilation in the city furnaces. You will be taken there immediately, and you will burn. interesting thing about this little shot here is that it is um, surveillance footage theoretically and it, the challenge was to block it in such a way that it, all the information could be revealed from one camera angle. It always makes me laugh when I see uh, video camera footage, hidden video camera footage in movies and somehow it always ends up uh, wonderfully edited together and shot from the most a number of the most opportune angles. This was one of the tunnels in the uh, incomplete subway that I used for uh, in Berlin. The uh, lights in the background you see were created by both uh, Klaus and Wolf uh, to create a um, uh, an even intrusive lighting. They actually worked pretty well. I was very concerned about where we would hide those lights, but it turned out not to be necessary. The incineration has gone through. It's going through now. Hey! Emily is a fine actress. And the great thing about her is that she committed to this role I mean, she really committed to it. And after all, it is a fairly pulpy role in a genre film by Dimension. And, uh, but she came to play, and she completely committed to the reality of it. I first met her in London. She had just won a BAFTA award, I recall. And uh, I was impressed. Uh, her acting obviously spoke for itself. And I was impressed by her um, very mature sexuality, which was something I had never seen from her before and uh, I really believed that she would be great in this movie and I lobbied very very hard with the studio to get her in it and uh, to the credit of everybody involved eventually they relented and we put her in okay so I go into the eye again it seemed like a good idea at the time This is the exterior of uh, Hitler's Olympic Stadium, once again. We built the steps that you will see momentarily. This was a really, really big deal on our budget, uh, and we had a zero-tolerance uh, window to shoot the scenes that took place on this step in. Uh, there was a, uh, a soccer game coming up that's going to be played in the, uh, the stadium here, and the Germans take their soccer very seriously and they weren't about to push that for uh, something as inconsiderable as a movie. Um, a lot of people think Albert Speer built this stadium, but in fact, that's not true. Actually, it was built much earlier by a, um, an architect named uh, Otto March, and Speer only came in at the last moment before the Olympic Games and put the, what I believe is limestone clotting. There, he smiles again, although I don't think he means it. Uh, the limestone clotting on the exterior of the building. 
Now, certainly Tay is uh, feeling here, but uh, in my sense, this kind of totalitarian system, fascistic system, encourages any behavior that is advantageous to its continuance, whether it actually fits in 100% uh, with the doctrine or not. And they discourage anything, whether it's in line with the doctrine or not. You notice he says uh, relationships with a female. Some people questioned how in a world without feeling anybody could uh, propagate. Uh, I didn't bother addressing this in the film, and maybe I should have, but I didn't bother addressing it because even in our contemporary reality, there's plenty of procreation that goes on in vitro that, without uh, actual physical, con physical contact. And I just assumed that the audience would uh, make that assumption. To me, the whole uh, concept of the family in this film is strictly residual. Uh, there was some dialogue at one time earlier in the film that made it clear that they were really sort of on the cusp of this society, that it had only been around since about the time Christian had been born, or Preston had been born. And, you know, much like we wear ties, like he's wearing there, and that shot there as, you know, re the residual from the customary bibs that we used to wear in medieval times. Yeah, we don't know why we wear this silly flap of uh, fabric around our, our, our um, necks, yet we do it, and there's plenty of things we say and gestures we make that we've long since forgotten the reason why we do them. And in any case, to me, in this movie, the family, which they would ultimately get rid of eventually in this, this film, in this kind of society, um, but of course you can't do everything at once, you can't spring everything at once on human beings. It was strictly a residual arrangement that they were in the process of getting rid of. I think in an earlier draft of the script, actually, I'd even had somebody remarking on the, the uh, you know, the program of communization that was in, uh, being launched. You arrested me. What? Take him to the Hall of Destruction for summary judgment and combustion. Wait, 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 wait! I can explain this. I'm sorry. I'm not feeling. He is the one who's feeling. This is a mistake. Of course. The other thing I think to keep in mind about this film is that it is. It was never meant on any level for me to be taken. Not for me. For the audience to take it uh, literally. It was never meant as a chilling vision of the future that could possibly happen. This film was always a parable and a fairy tale. And it really just remains whether you want to be told that parable or that fairy tale. The only thing that disturbs me, sir, is that I am father's instrument against the underground, and yet I've never had the honor Yes, but cleric, you know that father never grants an audience to anyone. Even to the man who brings him the resistance? All actors are different. They all have the take that they hit. This car, clearly a slightly modified Cadillac. This falls in line with the uh, titles at the front of the, the, the film. I mean... I could have made the decision to make a flying car or something like that, but it really wouldn't have furthered the story, so I made the decision to just do the cheapest thing I possibly could, and that was uh, the Cadillac. The irony is, though, is that in Europe, you cannot find large-size sedans except for Mercedes and BMW, and those were, I thought, too obvious, so it was only after looking very hard that we found two used that we could um, buy very cheaply in Germany and, uh, and disguise.
very hard shot to get there without seeing the Steadicam operator in the mirror behind him. Looking for something? If I were you, I'd be more careful in the future. It was hard shooting on this set because um, three of the walls flew and because we had a very limited amount of time, obviously, to shoot, uh, it was a rather complex mathematical algorithm to figure out what order to roll these, fly these walls out uh, in order to shoot the scenes properly, and, and it also in continuity with uh, what the character was going through. You forget. It's my job to know what you're thinking. Then you know what I'm going to do now. Done. I'll give you a coke if you can tell me where I stole this shot from. Come now. You'll have them all. I can tell I'm gonna go bankrupt now for having to buy people cokes. This is uh, David Hemmings, who was a very big actor back in the 60s and uh, starting to regain some steam again. You may have seen him in Gladiator. Test. Yes. You didn't imagine we would risk exposing Father to even such a dedicated servant as yourself without first having him tested, did you? This scene uh, reflects the fact that there was a, a pair of scenes that I cut out earlier in the film where Preston accompanies DuPont on his way to see Father, where he actually passes through this room and continues down the, uh, and establishes the quote-unquote uh, Hall of Mirrors, as I called it, all the way to um, the doors of quote-unquote Father's office. What this did was establish that after he exits this room here, he passes through a pair of metal detectors, which determine whether he is armed or not. And uh, he surrenders his guns there. You'll actually be able to see them momentarily. What you say is the easiest way to get a weapon away from a Bremerton cleric. You ask him for it. I told you I'd make Tay is wearing black now to indicate that he has been promoted to a Gramaton cleric first class. You see them right here behind these guys in the metal detectors. In any case, uh, having taken those scenes out now, it simply appears to be an oversight that he wasn't searched for guns before reaching this room, when in fact it's just after this room that they, um, he's searched, he would technically be searched for guns before entering the gauntlet that leads to Father's office. Scenes were taken out for pacing purposes. In order to pass Sean Pertwee, another very fine English actor who I was lucky to have in this film. He has a great voice and he works all the time in, uh, in commercials in uh, London. And uh, he was kind enough to come over there from London and help us out. But where to find such a man? 
a man with a capacity. The idea behind this scene was that uh, in the initial kendo scene where Christian's battling Tay, Tay does get the best of Christian in that scene, but that's because Christian, in my interpretation, that Christian is, or Preston, is overcome with uh, the flood of uncustomary emotions at that time. And in this scene, he, uh, he clearly, at the end of it, he sheds those emotions, as is indicated by the polygraph, and uh, becomes once again the cold god of death. And everybody in the room knows instantly that that's an extremely bad thing for them. And you, Preston, the supposed savior of the resistance, are now its destroyer. And along with them, you've given me yourself. Come. Entirely without incident. Let's watch. No. Oh. Shit. Not without incident. That guy was a serious actor, and it was very hard to get that semi-comical expression out of him. I'd like to point out that was not done with wires there. There is no wires whatsoever in this film. I think a lot of people thought that there was the film was full of wires for some reason. interesting things about this scene is that although I really really didn't want to the only thing musically I could get that could compete with the gunfire was to use guitars and so I was constantly asking uh, Klaus even though I know he would joke about it behind my back I was constantly asking him to give me a, um, a piece that included what I called Wagnerian guitars for this scene so Christian kicks everybody's ass, and he doesn't have a scratch on him. Uh, a lot of people love this. Some people don't. I, uh, it's just a matter of taste. I personally like my heroes that just whip ass, and, and that's that. At the end of the day, it's a, it's a fantasy. And from my point of view, action is how men express romance on film. Uh, whether it be uh, romance for family, wives, children, king, country, it doesn't matter. But uh, they express their love by whipping ass in the name of one or the other or the above. And, uh, you know, when I was growing up and fantasizing about whipping ass, which is what, you know, boys do and maybe even adults like me, uh, I can promise you that in my fantasy, you didn't get a few good licks in. I kicked your ass in a commanding fashion with uh, compelling punctuation. And so, you know, I'm simply translating my fantasies onto, onto uh, celluloid here, and uh, that's what you're getting. I always find it annoying when 
in a climactic fight in a film when the bad guy is uh, beating up the good guy because I find it boring. There's no suspense there. We all know that eventually the fight's going to turn and uh, the good guy's going to win. So in my conception, let's get on with it. It's a fantasy after all. And since it's a fantasy, you know, let's not make our dream girl gorgeous except she's got, you know, a wooden leg. So when Christian is uh, back to his cold-blooded killer self, Tay doesn't stand a chance. And uh, by the way, neither does anybody else. The audience always really enjoys that. And it always kind of interests me because I've seen plenty of movies like Blade Two that are infinitely more gory and they have plenty of that stuff. But uh, the individual scenes don't get uh, nearly the response and not because uh, it's executed any uh, worse, because it's not. Um, but I think it's because there is nothing like it prior to this in this film that it just sort of stands out and uh, is not swamped by uh, other similar things in the film. When I watch these fight scenes, I kind of cringe a bit because I know we could have done them so much better, but we had so little time to shoot this. And oftentimes we only had one take, uh, especially if it was something that uh, involved multiple squibs because the reset time simply would have killed us. This was the best we could do, by the way, in, in terms of our resources, as far as creating a sumptuous and hypocritical office for DuPont, because uh, the Germans, contrary to what I was hoping, were not about to let us shoot in some of the magnificent palaces they have there in Berlin, but uh, that would have been great. I pay it gladly. I always wish you would have opened the doors a little longer and we would have held on that shot of all the dead guys out there. The following items have been rated EC-10. Condemned. A moment of slightly broad comedy, which doesn't really work. I've concluded I'm not good at it, and I'll just stick with the action. Two millennia ago, Conquest of the known world. You know, uh, a lot of people said that uh, the production design was uh, kind of ripping off Met Metropolis there with those cityscapes. Uh, I'm not sure these people have seen Metropolis in recent times. This cityscape looks nothing like a Metropolis. I drew um, almost all my inspiration for the cityscapes here in the design of the city from uh, Hugh Ferris, an early 20th century conceptual artist. You know, in the final analysis, uh, this film was eviscerated by the critics. It was really vilified in, uh, in a measure that I've usually only seen reserved for established directors who have made a $100 million flop. And uh, I don't fully understand it, but, uh, you know, I believe in chivalry still and good, bad, and, and uh, black and white. And I don't think it's a movie for cynics, but uh, I'm not a cynic, and so that's why... I'll hopefully be making movies forever. I'm out.